Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Frank and Phyllis Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Harris from Frank and Fearless. Uh, today, I'm joined by somebody who is larger than life, uh, who has a big, massive personality, and who is on a mission to help one million small business owners. Hello, Julie Crefield. Hi, I'm super excited to be here. Cool. Um, just give us a little bit of an overview of who you are and what you do. So my business cards say that I'm a business growth strategist. You know, that's my official job title. Um, But what I help people do, and I think it's what I've always helped people to do, is to think bigger about what is possible, to think bigger about their potential, to think bigger than just what they can currently see. So outside of their own environment. You know, I started my career off working with young people, helping them to see beyond, you know, um, the estate that they lived on or the school that they went to. And obviously now I work predominantly with small business owners, but I don't think the mission has really changed. It's just about helping people to scale up their ambition. And actually, some of the things that keep us stuck are the things that kept us stuck when we were kids. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of the themes that I help people to explore, they're so universal that, you know, the the, the things that I work on are the things I've always worked on with people. It's, you know, looking for the evidence that things can be different. So what what do you think it is that prevents people from dreaming or being bigger than they actually are? Um, I think we like to make sense of things. So we like to put things in boxes. We like to uh, create zones of safety, whether that's in terms of understanding or, or, you know, like if you think about young people, particularly in London, where I'm from, um, you know, we have postcode wars. And the reason we have postcode wars is because people don't, you know, young people don't have a lot of control. So what they want to be able to at least control is the streets that they walk on. And so for people that don't live in a inner city environment, they might not be able to understand why that even makes sense. But for the young people that I worked with growing up, hmm. um, makes perfect sense. So I think you can't, often understand what you can't see and that works both ways you know i've worked with politicians who are making policy on 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 things like housing on things like education and employment and they've never lived the lives of the policies that you know or the the impact the policy is going to have um so i i think it's it always starts with awareness and challenging people's awareness and understanding and then it comes to the fun part of like imagining imagining playing you know really tuning into what you desire and quite often the language comes up with you know I don't I just want this or I just want that or you know in an ideal world maybe you know and and so it's just it's unpacking the belief systems that we have and where we limit ourselves can you give us an example either with for yourself or with somebody that you've worked closely with over the years that's actually completely kept on smashing through gone bigger gone bigger again and gone bigger again i just love for you to share a story oh my god there were so many do you know i remember i worked um on the olympics for about eight years in various roles and one of the early roles i had was during bid phase where i was volunteer manager for newham council and um i remember getting this email from um from a company that said oh we know you've got a volunteer program and it's predominantly young people and we're looking for a team of ethnically diverse young people to come out to Australia to help the UK bid for world skills and world skills is like a competition for young people kind of on the scale of the Olympics actually and I I was like yeah I'll, I'll come out to Australia and I took these five young people and those young people had never left the UK before. I think one of them had, she'd been to to Pakistan with her family, but the five young people that I'd taken had never been outside of the UK. They'd never represented their school. They'd never been for a sit down meal. They'd, you know, there were, there were so many things that they did on that trip. Mm-hmm. You know, they were representing the UK and the UK won the rights to run the 2011 World Skills competition, competition at Excel. And Tony Blair, who was the Prime Minister at the time, phoned these young people 
at about three in the morning to congratulate them for their role in helping the UK to win this bid. And I've watched those young people grow into adults and it makes me want to cry at what they have gone on to do. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the girls, and I can't remember her name now, she went on to help with the recruitment process of the 2012 Games Maker program. She was really high up within that, um, you know, with the within the volunteer management program, you know, and that would have all been about seeing things differently, you mm. know, understanding um, that if you put yourself in in a different environment different things happen and I can remember at one point um the the team that took us out there said oh you know tomorrow night we've got a gala dinner um do the girls have something to wear and I said to the girls do you have something to wear for a gala dinner they were like we've got a dress but not really for a gala dinner and so the company said look here's a thousand pound go shopping and so we went shopping in Melbourne for gala dresses you know and it's just that ability to go oh my god you know somebody's going to give us money to mm-hmm. go and buy a posh frock because they want us to feel included. They want us to be able to feel proud. Um, and I think that blows your mind. I mean, it blew my mind, you know, and, and I, I did have a posh frock, um, you know, but I was still like 24, 25 when I went out to Melbourne. And, you know, some of the sponsors that they had were like Vidal Sassoon and Claridge's and all of these big UK brands that went out. I think there was about 50 um, different people that went out as part of this competition phase. But what it did, it blew, it blew my mind. You know, I can remember crying. I think I'd had a couple of glasses of wine, but I can remember crying going, you know, my mum just doesn't understand how important I am or, or the experiences yeah. that I have. You know, she knows I've gone out to Melbourne for something. She doesn't know that Tony Blair just phoned our hotel room. She doesn't know that we, you know, sat, I can't remember this really posh place that we went to, you know, and you can't be what you can't see. And I know that gets said so often, Mm. Um, but it is when you find yourself in these situations, you think, actually, I have value just as myself. I don't have to change. I don't have to be posh. I don't have to, you know, I have value in these situations that initially I might have thought were bigger than me. So in those moments when you're not feeling valued mm. and you're feeling low where, where does your where does your resilience where does where's the inner core come from that you know how do you get out of that I think for me personally it's about reminding myself of where I've come from reminding myself that I am like the comeback kid you know I I pick myself up after a fall and normally have my best ideas you know I can trace back every bit of exponential growth in my career always followed something really crap happening you know like it was either a relationship breakdown or my mum and dad's divorce or you know just something um that made me go actually I don't want this life I'm going to choose something different and I think when you um when you have a life that has elements of trauma or things that are just really difficult and complex you then have an ability to be okay with uncomfortableness mm-hmm. it then gets to the point where you get to choose the uncomfortableness do i do i want the un- uncomfortableness of being around gang culture which was my experience when i was a teenager or do i want the uncomfortableness of going to university where i'm going to feel like the stupidest in the room which one which one do i want to choose you know, and I think that's all that life is really, is a series of choices around where you're willing to feel uncomfortable. So when was the last time you felt really uncomfortable? God, it's all the time. I mean, I, I gave a talk at the weekend in front of my peers. It's a, it's a bit like a busman's holiday, you know, speaking to other speakers. You know, you know you're going to be judged, you know, on a, on so many different levels. Um, but yeah, I, I gave the the talk before lunch at the Professional Speakers Association, London region. And, you know, up until that point, all of the talks had been quite muted and quite serious. And I came on to, I need a hero, you know, in a, in a glittery dress and, you know, spoke from the heart and, and talked about, I think my, my first slide was, you know, 2021, the year I missed, uh, the year I lost a million, you know, and, and so... I, I'm like an open book in the way mm-hmm. that I share my story. And that triggers people and it makes some people feel uncomfortable. But I don't know how else to be. So so I'm, I'm glad that you, I, I was going to cover this. 
So for those people that are that are new and they haven't heard you before, one of the things that is I love about you is that your authenticity, your rawness, your ability to share is quite different because most people put on this veneer, they put on a perception. Um, have you always been like this? Um, good question. I think I have. I mean, my mum would say I have. My mum was always saying to me, oh, why do you have to be so emotional? Like, you know, I, I think I've always been an oversharer. I think mm-hmm. I've always realised the impact you can have through sharing your emotions. I, I was always told by my mum I was too emotional and that I take things to heart too much. Um, but I think that was more of a reflection of her and how she felt comfortable sharing how she felt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also realised when I, when I went to university, nobody from my family had ever gone. So I had no nobody to ask for advice. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't do A-levels, so I didn't even know how to write an essay. And I can remember when I went for the, um, it was kind of an audition because it was an arts-based degree. And so we did this physical workshop where they were reviewing our performance skills and then we had to write an essay. And the essay was something like um, describe drama or something like that. And so the drama that I described was how mad it was in my house that morning, how there were no clean socks and how my brother was arguing and how, you know, so I talked about the realities of living in a single parent family with five other siblings. That wasn't the brief. The brief was to write an essay, but I still got into university on that because of my rawness, my authenticity and my ability to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... I've never been afraid to say, I don't know how that works, or I've not done that before. Um, and there's an element of blagging, you know, I've blagged many things in my past. Um, I don't believe in fake it till you make it. I, I more believe in be it until you can see it in yourself. And so I will always just give something a go and go, look, I tried my best. Um, you know, and, and in the early days of my career, when I worked for the public sector, often my best wasn't good enough and I'd get pulled into, you know, to my line manager's office and they'd say, you clearly don't understand the rules of local government or you clearly don't, you know, didn't listen or pay attention when we told you how to invoice or how to do this or how to do that. Um, but I think what I lacked in following the rules, I made up for in creativity and enthusiasm and in my ability to gather people around and to want to get involved in the things that I was doing. So with what you're doing now, could how far back could you see knowing that this is what you were going to do? I have this belief that I don't know how it works for, for, for men, but I think for women, I have this real belief that when we're eight or nine, we know exactly who we should be. Okay. Right, and so when I was eight, nine, 10, I wanted to be a writer, desperately wanted to be a writer. Um, And I had this old typewriter that I think my dad had found or whatever, and I was always on this typewriter writing stories. So I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be on the stage, I wanted to perform, but I think ultimately I wanted to be listened to, I wanted to be heard. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what a career that did those things looked like. But all I know is every time a career person or a teacher suggested a career, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Um, And so I went with my heart and I followed the things that I was good at, which was drama. Um, So I have never had a career plan. I've never had an idea of who I want to be or what I want to do. But those core things of writing, being heard, performance, being in the spotlight, but also enabling change. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been able to spot problems and find solutions and to not ever have to do that by myself. I love bringing people together to go, right, how can we collectively um, solve this problem? You know, and my influencing skills and my ability to draw people together, that's followed me throughout my career. Has that ever got you into trouble? bringing other um, people into the into the mix. Yeah, I mean, I got a job working for Redbridge Council. There was nowhere in the brief that said we needed a volunteer programme. In fact, they actively did not want one. There was no budget, there was no desire for it. And let's just say after 18 months and me leaving, they had a robust volunteer programme with hundreds of local people who wanted to get involved locally. 
and the leader of the council was hugely annoyed with me. My boss kept telling me off for it. But that was my legacy. My legacy mm-hmm. was getting local people not just excited but involved. There's no point in people sitting on the sidelines being excited. They have to have a route to get involved. Um, and some of those um, people went on to to work in the stadium and to you know do all sorts of exciting things. Um, but my brief definitely did not say activate local people. You know, I had a, a report that had five themes. And my real job was to be a liaison between all of the different departments. But none of the departments wanted the Olympics. So I was like, well, what a waste of taxpayers' money to have mm-hmm. somebody that just sits at meetings and talks about the thing that nobody wants. You know, so I've always been a maverick. And I always think, like, I don't really care what the rules are. What I care about is the change. Um, I've always had a saying, don't change the rules, change the game. Mm. Um, I think this is why you and I get on well together, because... Um, there's so many similarities in just uh, fighting against the establishment, breaking the mold, yeah. collaboration, um, massive in collaboration. Um, who's the one person that you've not collaborated with that you would love to? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've had a, a challenging year this year in terms of collaboration and kind of trust. Mm. Um, and so I don't collaborate as much as I would like to okay why um trust issues i mean that's ultimately what it is um and and again it's understanding the rules so you know um there are a lot of business coaches out there that build their business through joint ventures you know through affiliates and and because i didn't really understand how it worked and I, i think there was an element of me thinking well that's not fair you know triggered that core thing of oh it's not fair Mm. I just didn't want to be part of it because I didn't quite understand how it worked. And when I started to understand how it worked, I was like, well, that's not fair. You know, so if somebody is out there raving and going, oh my God, you really got to sign up with this coach. They're awesome. On the face of it, you go, oh, that's brilliant. I'm getting a really good recommendation. But what you don't know is for everybody that person sends to this event or whatever, they're getting $500. Now it's a different narrative. Right. And so the rules are different in different countries around um, disclosing affiliate relationships. And so what looks like a genuine um, uh, recommendation or, or, yeah. or, you know, support. To, oh, I'm just being helpful here. It's not. It's self-serving. And I get really wound up by that because I, you know, one of my core values is transparency. And so yeah. when I see business coaches build, building their empire through um, affiliate relationships that are undisclosed, I get really annoyed. And so I find it difficult in some ways to establish relationships that feel fair, that feel like everybody comes out of it a winner. So in your opinion, is trust given or earned? Um, I think it's earned. Um, but I also think that mainly I'm a trust in person. Mm. And it's only after a series of realising that not everybody can be trusted. But it's it's kind of an understanding thing. Like, I'm so, when I came into the business coaching world, I was so naive. I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't know how it all worked. Um, and so it takes a while for you to find your feet. It's, it's like people that sign up for a webinar and then they go, oh, my God, and then it was a sales pitch. Like... Yeah, that's kind of what webinars are, you know, or people that do a five day free challenge and at the end of it get really annoyed because you send three emails inviting you, you know, inviting them to work with you. And you're like, that's the game. Like, this is how it works, love. Do you, so um, I've observed your career over the last few years and I, I feel that the content you put out is um, highly informative, really simple and easy to kind of understand. Do you think in some ways... Um, the UK or the European market is very different to kind of North America in kind of online sales, etc. I'd love your observations. Absolutely. Um, I worked with a, a, an American coach a couple of years ago. I've worked with quite a few American coaches. And what I would say is the line of ethics is very right. different. And, I, and it's not to say that they are unethical, 
but what I deem to be unethical. And I think it's something to do with the way that they market, right? Mm. So I think, and this is an observation, I don't know if it's true or not, it could be a, a kind of a bullshit belief, but I think what we do in the UK is we look at what we got and we market it based on on how good we think it is, right? And my observation is that the Americans start with the end in mind. So they go, right, I want to sell 10 of these at a million pounds. How do I do that? And they reverse mm -hmm. engineer it. So so it all starts with the compelling marketing, even if the program is shit. Yeah. Does that make sense? And so I've Absolutely. seen I've seen American coaches look at my copy, completely rip it to shreds, rewrite it for me, and then I'm like, well, that's not even my program anymore. That's not what I'm delivering. And so mm. now my marketing material does not fit, you know, what I'm actually delivering, and therefore that isn't ethical, you know. But it might get the the sale right. And so that I think is the difference. Is the the Americans are great at selling. Do you think the buyer behavior is quite different as well? Yeah, I do. I, I do. And I think that's something to do with the market, the market size and the market availability. Mm. Um, and I mean, I, I don't understand a lot of, of the kind of politics of it, but um, just understanding the scale of, of the US. And, you know, I look at my Instagram figures, you know, I've got about 3,000 followers. You know, that, that is so insignificant for, for an American coach, you know, that it'd be in the millions, you know, even if they're not like at the top of their game. And it's just to do with how many people live in America. Yeah, I, I also feel, uh, and having spent some time in North America, that the attitude and culture towards business is quite different. So, and I'd love your thoughts on this. I think um, if you start a business in the UK and you don't succeed, it's kind of like, well, why did you try that? Mm. Whereas in America, the, it's kind of like, hey, well done for giving it a go. Just get back on your horse and try again. <laughs> yeah. um, there does seem to be quite a difference. Yeah. Have you, have you observed that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's spin. I think the Americans are great at spin, you know? And also like, I don't know, I feel like there is something, it might just be my experience, but I feel like sometimes the Brits need to earn their stripes they need to graft and they need to have time in the game mm. whereas americans don't my observation is that americans don't seem to need that they'll go in like so confident like you know yes i'm sell selling a million dollar product and no i've never done it before so how did you get into the coaching and the online world that you're in now so 12 years ago i set up a blog I didn't know how to do that. I had to Google, how do I set up a blog? Um, and it was all about being a runner. Uh, you know, I am a runner, I'm a bad runner, I'm not very good, but I'm very persistent. And the blog was really humorous. It was just a really funny take at being a fat, slow runner. And it got quite a lot of momentum quite quick, but it was anonymous because I had a job and it was a little bit of a conflict of interest politically because here I had this job on the Olympics that was supposed to be about activating people to be healthy and here I was with a fat runner blog. So it had to be completely anonymous, didn't share my name, didn't share my photo, but it got a lot of momentum globally actually. The Americans loved it. And um, then I got made redundant from my job on the Olympics and the only thing I had to keep me from losing my mind was my blog. So I put a lot of effort and energy into getting back into my running and writing on the blog. And I just was like, I wonder if I can turn this into a business. Um, and blogging was very different then to what it is now. Um, the landscape for plus size fitness was very different then. It just wasn't a thing here in the UK. In the, in the US, there was already a kind of market for it, but here there wasn't. So I was kind of first to market, which was good in some ways and bad in, in others. Mm. But I learned everything from scratch. I, I, you know, I still don't really understand SEO, don't really understand Facebook ads, but you know, I've had to learn all of the systems, all of the processes um, by trial and error, really. You know, I wouldn't have necessarily said, you know, years ago that I was a born salesperson, but now I teach other people how to sell programs because I understand people's buying behaviors and kind of how you make the selling process easier as a as a business owner. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, 12 years of 
being active in the online world and learning how to leverage your story and leverage, you know, your content. Um, and, you know, at the heart of everything that I do online, it's about activation. It's about growing an audience and getting them to feel part of your mission, part of your journey. And then they become the best market marketers for you. Mm-hmm. You know, two-factor run, um, I didn't have a budget for marketing. You know, so it was built on word of mouth. It was built on people buying a T-shirt and going, oh, where'd you get that T-shirt from? Oh, you should go and check out this blog. You know, and over time, you know, I had to earn the respect of the running world who initially wanted me to to piss off. You know, I was an embarrassment, you know, and, and I was told, oh, it's a gimmick. You'll never make any money from it. But my persistence meant that, you know, I had, you know, nearly 30,000 followers on a Facebook page you know, the running world couldn't ignore me anymore. Do you think that persistence and tenacity and opportunistic always seems to, I always think that you're one or two steps ahead of everybody else. Only a couple couple of steps though. Yeah, but to consistently always be ahead of the game. Yeah. Is that, is that raw talent? Is it, um, are you a futurist? I think I am a futurist. So when cool. I did my strengths analysis, futurist is, is in my top five. So yeah. I, I do think that I'm forward thinking and I'm able to spot opportunities before other people can. I genuinely think that is the case. I also think it's an element of my upbringing. Like we were ridiculously poor. You know, my mum raised six kids on her own. And so being able to spot opportunity was something that was inherent in all of us, you know, because... You know, you just found unique ways of getting more sweets or, you know, whatever the thing was, whatever it was we wanted. You know, I wanted a Game Boy when I when I was 14. I wanted a Game Boy. Yep. My mum was never going to be able to afford to buy me a Game Boy. So I had, a, had to find a legitimate way of me acquiring one without ending up in a Young Offenders uh, Institute, you know, and that was babysitting. So I babysat for 20 weeks solid until yep. I had enough money to go and buy a Game Boy. Have you still got it? No, I wish I did though. I love my Game Boy. <laughs> uh, I've just bought um, uh, an arcade machine that's got like 3,000 of the old arcade games love on it. like Super Mario and everything like that. Love it. Um, so talk, let's talk about a little bit towards the future then. So mm. what, what, what do you feel is the next big things that are going to happen? Um, not just necessarily within your industry, but where where... Give us your insights. I think there's a big crash coming, right? I think there's a lot of gurus out there or influencers. And I think the consumer is going to become a lot more savvy. And some of the tricks that people have been able to get away with for for donkey's years around influencing people en masse to buy products that they don't need, I think that's shifting. I think it's changing. And I think the pandemic and more people going online and, and people not knowing the rules and all of those kind of things has changed changed the culture, I think. And, and I think um, the culture of calling people out online, all of those things mean that I think people that are consuming uh, online programs and packages are going to become a little bit more savvy and they're going to ask better questions through the sales process and things like that. And I also think the businesses that will do really well are the ones that are very much hybrid. So if you can create real life opportunities for people to be in your world or to feel like they're in your world. So, you know, traditional print uh, media, fantastic. You know, I built a lot of um, goodwill um, globally through getting into magazines. You know, I've, I've been in Cosmopolitan in New Zealand. I've been in Cosmopolitan in, in Switzerland, you know. And when somebody opens up a magazine that is in their home, mm-hmm. you become so much more real than just some blogger that they access via their phone. So if you think about um, where the growth is at the moment, the growth is in influencers and content creators who are under the age of 21, right? That's the fastest increase in business opportunity. Now, whether it's robust, whether we like it, the point is these people are becoming superstars, Mm -hmm. you know, and the the wealth that they can tap into 
would blow our minds because we are so behind them you know in terms of the content they're creating and the 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 speed at which they can take things to market and so i think if we are selling to you know our market is likely to be people older than them who still believe in print marketing who still you know get excited if they see somebody they know in their local paper and i think it's understanding that that some of the more traditional uh, ways of marketing are going to do you better than trying to become a TikTok star. Yeah, my observation would be is that it feels as if a lot of them just really know their audience. They've gone niche very fast, very quickly. Um, they've done it completely for the love and the passion and almost serendipitously the money's just followed because they're just giving people what they need and what, what they want. Um, yeah, yes and no. I think there's another thing is that the the TikTokers, the Snapchatters, you know, the, these more viral influencers, they have never known a life where they don't have a mobile phone in their hand. Yeah. So they are, they, I don't think, and this is again a bit of a guess, but I don't think they have the fear of showing up that we do. And so, you know, they are happy to spend all day working on a piece of content you know whereas we we do it for you know we do two takes of something else sod this you know because it's too confronting for us to to you know to look at how we look you know and to think oh my god what will, what will my mum say or what will my auntie say or what will my friends that I went to school with say whereas the culture for young people is that they live their lives online anyway so they might as well make money from it um so it would be a miss of me if we didn't mention your daughter at this point <laughs> just just share some of the things your daughter's been getting up to. Uh, so Rose is almost nine. And since she was about four, she wanted a YouTube channel. Right? And so me and her dad for the longest time are like, no, no, you're not having one, you're not having one. And then this year I buckled. Um, and in part it was because of watching her during lockdown, seeing how much she understands about the online world and how excited she is by the idea of entrepreneurship and you know she's very smart she uh, is very creative and can be hyper focused on something so actually having something that is a project for her to look you know look after over a longer period of time become a something that we both believe would be good so she launched a, a YouTube channel called Outrageously Rosie uh, she has a grand total of 22 subscribers. Um, but what's really interesting is how she sees herself now as a YouTuber. You know, she takes herself seriously. You know, she has a content schedule, right? She was telling me about her content schedule. You know, and, and she's following her passion. Her passion is um, Sims. She loves Sims and she loves roadblocks. And mm -hmm. so she does all this research on her favourite YouTubers. And then she implements it in her own way and I said right from the start I will help you but I am not running another business you know yeah. if you if you want to do this you've got to learn she's learned how to do Canva she's researched how to create merchandise I mean she's super focused on this you know and, and I'm not attached to the outcome you know I'm not here pushing her going right she's going to be a famous YouTuber you know that's not important to me but what is important to me is having a vehicle for us to discuss what the online world is and isn't mm -hmm. how you can make money she's fascinated by how she can make money she said to me the other day can i have 13 pounds i said what do you want 13 pounds for oh i can't tell you i said well you can't have 13 pounds then she went all right she said i want a grammarly account so for those that don't know grammarly helps you with your spelling i yeah. was like smart girl smart girl you know so i don't know she inspires me every day just in terms of her view of herself she feels like she's unstoppable you know and that is inspiring to see because I can remember how I felt when I was eight and nine and I don't I know where I lost that I lost that through my parents saying don't be too big don't show off and all of that mm -hmm. through teachers saying come on give everybody else a chance and it gets beaten out of you through the schooling system so the longer I can encourage her to go for her dreams the longer I will at what point then do you think you might pull her out of school Oh God, if I could homeschool without losing my shit, I would. But she, you know, she triggers the hell out of me because she's so yeah. smart. 
And yeah. so I know I can't school her. I know yeah. that. But it's funny. We, She loves to travel and um, I love to travel. And so she's always like, oh, I want to go here and I want to go there. And I'm always like, yeah, when you're 10, when you're 10. And then she called me out on it. She went, we're not, we're not going to a lot of places when I'm 10. And so I said to her, all right, maybe I'll take you out of school when you're 10 and we'll do a world tour. Yep. And so what started as a bit of a joke is actually now something I'm considering. Um, so I may take her out and kind of world school her. Um, but it, I don't think I could do it from what, just one location. I think that would drive me nuts. Um, yeah, when... Uh... When we homeschooled our eldest, uh, my wife took her on a bit of a tour around Europe, and mm. the value that she got, my, she, it was just amazing yeah. to see in all the culture and being in it, and yeah. you know, uh, twelve years old going in down Amsterdam and understanding all about prostitution and everything like that. Yeah, and yeah. some people are like, well, "Well, why would you do that?" It's like, look, this is the way of the world. Yeah. There's no point yeah. in in shielding them. Yeah. You know. and, and so many of my, um, you know, my siblings and, and my friends, they're, they're like, oh, my God, you can't take her out of school. Then that's the most important year before, you know, before she goes to secondary school. And, and I just don't believe that to be true. Hmm. Um, Julie, who is the audience that haven't heard you that need to hear you? I don't know. I think there are so many people out there who are second guessing themselves, who are thinking because of where they were born or because of the color of their skin or because of what, you know, all of these different things that think that success isn't available to them. That's the audience that I want to get to. You know, I want to inspire people with my story for sure, but I also want to give people real practical tools that they can use in their business. Mm-hmm. you know um and it's easy to think that the market is saturated that everybody already knows a business coach but there are still so many people that are not accessing the online world because it's all based on algorithms isn't it you know you you get involved in one online coach and then all of a sudden you you start getting targeted through facebook ads for all of the others and you think oh my god the world is full of them but mm-hmm. there are still hundreds of thousands of small business owners or people aspiring to grow businesses that are not tapped into any of that stuff. It's a whole new world for them. And what's the comment? So there'll be people that will, that will be listening to this that will be like, oh, I think I might know somebody that Julie should be speaking to. What What are the common things that those people are saying uh, that they should be looking out for that they should then be referring you in? Yeah. I mean, the business owners that I love working with are what I describe as mission led, right, which is a bit of a kind of wanky term. But what it means is the business is a vehicle for change. Right. And what happens is people go one of two ways. They either have to give up on their values and their mission to keep money coming in and and to keep food in the fridge. And then they feel really bad that they've had to move over to the dark side or um, they almost sacrifice business growth and income for doing really good work in the world, right? And almost what they have is a charity or mm-hmm. an expensive hobby that does brilliant work, you know, but isn't profitable, isn't a uh, commercial venture. And so I want to show people you can have both. You can create extraordinary wealth and you can do whatever you want with that. You can buy a Lamborghini if you want, I don't care but you can also do incredible uh, work and you can change things in your industry or you know whatever the things that are that you're passionate about you can use money for that you know the my income has grown parallel with the amount of impact that I've made in the world and I think it will continue to do that but what I know mm-hmm. is the more money I make um, I, I know I will use that money for good because you know I'm not into designer shoes and I'm not into flash cars so you get to a point where you're like well what will I do with all of that excess money right and so when you're working class there is this element of like I watched my nan do it if my nan ever won at bingo she couldn't get rid of the money quick enough you know and and that is a working class it's like feast or famine when you've got you spend and when you don't you save you know you scrimp and scrape and we I believe it's a whole money mindset thing that we have to learn 
to have excess because when you have excess you have choices and you mm. can do things with that wealth um but if you're constantly thinking oh i only need a certain amount with maybe a little bit of excess then you're limiting your potential and what happens there and this is me getting all polit- political is the wealth goes to people that don't manage it very well give us some of your top tips for those people that are listening what would you be saying what would you recommend I think it starts with being playful. I think it starts with allowing yourself to dream, allowing yourself to look at what other people have achieved, to take inspiration from different industries and just to to play that wishful thinking game. You know, in an ideal world, if someone came along with a magic wand, what would I want, right? I always say the howing stops the allowing. Right. So when you you get a big idea for something and then when you start breaking it down into how you're going to do it, then you realize, oh, that's hard work or I don't know the answer to that. Or I would have to ask that person for help. Then you start talking yourself out of it and you go, oh, maybe I'll do something a little bit smaller. So I think it starts with this big vision and a realization that you don't have to have all the answers. Um, So I'm sitting at home, I'm listening to this podcast and going, yeah. So well and good, you know, Adam, you and Julie talking about this. What what's the one or two questions that I should be asking myself or taking note of and then spend time reflecting on? When you and this is a cliche, but I'm gonna say it because it happened to me recently, when you are on your deathbed, are you gonna be satisfied with what you've done with your life? Right? Having just had COVID, ended up in hospital eight hours on a trolley. I was so angry with myself. I was so frustrated. I was like, if this is how I'm going out, Mm -hmm. I am underwhelmed with what I've managed to do in my life because I knew there was still more that I wanted to do. And so we believe that we've got years ahead of us. And, you know, we know that's not the case. Drop down dead tomorrow. And so when you ask yourself that core question, you allow yourself to believe that actually you might only have 12 months left. What would you do? What would you Mm -hmm. do if you knew you couldn't fail or you knew that in your failure you would inspire somebody else that would go off and do something as a result? Because it is that ripple. You know, I've met people that said, you know, I was inspired by your blog. I set up a blog and now I do X, Y, Z. You know, you never really know who's watching you. Yeah. And it's funny listening to, I'm just reflecting as you're saying that and going, uh, when my wife had cancer eight years ago, it was the, one of the hardest things to kind of go through, but the impact that that has then had on us as a family. I wouldn't be sat here now in New Zealand um, if it wasn't for that, because yeah. it pushed us to have and appreciate the value of life. Um, so thinking on that then, and you said that you were frustrated with yourself lying on that hospital bed, what's that now allowed you and given you permission to, to dream Um, and think bigger for you? So I I always had this belief that for me to be able to give back, I would have to have an excess of wealth, right? So I was like, oh, you know, when I'm a millionaire, I'll then set up a foundation. I'll then do charitable work. I'll then be able to give my time and money to causes that I believe in. And, you know, my business does okay, but there isn't always an enormous amount of excess at this point. And I don't want to have to be reliant on that to be able to leave a legacy of of change. And so through a series of kind of serendipitous events, I've now um, signed a partnership with a global charity. And next year I'm running the Sierra Leone Marathon and will be raising £100,000 for Street Child. And it makes perfect sense. I don't need to create my own charity. There are many charities out there doing work that I believe in. Mm -hmm. And so it's about leveraging. You know, I've got an audience of 50,000, 60,000 plus size runners who are always looking for events to do and causes to raise money for. All I need to do is activate them. And before you know it, I'll be able to to make a million for, you know, young people that can't access education. So it's about just changing your perspective. And I haven't run a marathon in three years. I can't even run a 5K at the moment. But there's something about public accountability that works for me. Uh You know, it's that, you know, 
I can't deal with the thought of publicly failing on that scale. I mean, it's okay. You know, no one will die, hopefully. Um, But it does inspire me, you know, with people watching and going, oh, she's never going to do it, you know. And then I'm like, right, I'll show you. Well, it it, kind of creates the burning platform. But, you know, um, the research says is that, you know, we're far more likely to let ourselves down than let somebody else down. So when you have an accountability partner... You'll do it for them ten times more than you'll do it for yourself. And it's like when you think about it and you strip it back, it's there's kind of a level of madness. Yeah. Um, but it's just the way that we're wired. Yeah, yeah. And and we have that available to us in terms of social media, in terms of blogs, in terms of podcasts. There is no excuse. And and it is you you talked about it earlier on, like my persistence. We have digital infrastructure and and platforms that give us the ability to share content to share our thoughts to build an audience and it costs next to nothing so if you are willing to show up for an hour once a week for the rest of your life that cannot but change something but the point is most people are not willing to do that level of consistency because they want because they want it faster so it's um it's something inherently then within them that they're impatient. Yeah. Or because of the way that things are marketed, they believe that it's available in a quicker, faster way because that's what the marketeers say. You know, something like blogging, something like podcasting, it's a long game. You know, I was writing my blog for two years, three years before it ever made any money. You know, it didn't need to make any money because I had a job at the time and I didn't think I would monetize it. But... People can spend three or four years, it makes me laugh, people spend three or four years with a really crappy business, not going anywhere, right, trying to find the right solution, and if only they'd just written a blog once a week, yeah, their, their, their business would be in a much more stronger position, um, and it's that consistency. Well, so do you feel it's important then to do the things that you love and the, that you enjoy, and then actually... If you're enjoying it and you're putting the energy into it, is that people will then appreciate and value that, and then yeah. everything will come. Rather than let me create or think, what do I need to create that is perceiving going to be of value to everybody else? Yeah, yeah. And so it it always starts with what your strengths are and what your passions are. I've always loved writing, and so my here's one of the reasons why I've always liked writing. My nan was one of eighteen children. Right, grew up in the East uh, East End very poverty stricken but my uncle my great uncle which is her brother uh, Leslie he started selling newspapers outside of East Ham station with the desire to become a journalist and then the local newspaper gave him a job as a as a writer he ended up writing for the Scotsman the Guardian the Independent you know he traveled the world um, and wrote books and all of those things and I met him at at a wedding when I was 10 and I didn't know there was such a person in my family that had written books. And we become pen pals. And I always used to say to him, Uncle Les, how do I become a writer? Right? And I, I would think that he would give me like the inside route. He'd hook mm-hmm. me up with one of his publicists or something like that. He never did. He sent me a, a copy of the artist and writer's yearbook. And he said, if you want to be a writer, you've got to write. That was his only advice. If you want to be a writer, you've got to write. And I wrote my blog and he died before he seen, you know, seen me write my first book. But that was one of the things that he always taught me was just write, just write. And so, you know, the process of me writing to him as mm-hmm. a pen pal, you know, my writing skills improved, you know. What, what's, what, a, what a life lesson, but so simple, you know, just do the act, just do it. I mean, I kind of use a golf ball analogy in saying, you know, um, so many people just look at the obstacles that are in front of them, the hazards, you know, the wind, uh, the water, the trees, the roof. And sometimes you just got to pick a club and just hit the fucking ball. Yeah. And, I, and I think, um, you know, there's there's so many things and so many people that are, there's there's a level of fear that we, that holds people back. And actually, what we ha- what they have to do, and you know, you and I. Uh, are a massive advocates of this is lean into it and go right okay how do I feel comfortably uncomfortable yeah. knowing that I am safe you know Maslow's hierarchy needs is my base levels are covered mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable but what's going to come as a result of the on, on the other side yeah. 
And, um, and the bottom line is entrepreneurship is not safe, right? The sooner you realize that there is not one route to success, there is no blueprint, you cannot say, right, just tell me exactly how to do it so I can be successful. <laughs> you know, and, and this is what people want. They say, yeah. oh, I, I want the right strategy and I, I, I don't want to have to do this twice. I want to create one website and be that website for the rest of my life. It doesn't work like that. You know, and the sooner you realize that you're going to make mistakes and that you have to trial and test everything, just you're going to have a better experience of it. Julie, last couple of questions. If you were a superhero, what would your name be and what would your power be? It would have to be the activator. It would have to be the activator. Uh, and what would what would be your costume? Come on, give me some, give oh. us some, give us an image. Do you know what's in my head at the moment? Only because I showed this as a slide on Saturday. Um, I once did the um, the Euro Disney half marathon, and they said, "Oh, they paid for me and my sister to go out there and the kids and whatever, um, so that I would write a blog." And they said, "Will you dress up?" And I was like, oh, I don't want to dress up. Um, and then um, I dressed up as Mrs. Incredible from The Incredibles in, in a cat suit, which was highly um, funny. I don't know what my costume would be. I don't know. Okay. Um, the, su- the superpower would be like getting people into groups. You know, I'd be able to fly across the globe and get the right people into the right spaces and make shit happen. Like, Yeah. The Activator. (laughs) (laughs) Coming to a cinema near you. Um, Julie, I'm going to finish. Um, I saw saw a quote today, and for me, this just sums up who you are. Um, Vision is the art of seeing what is invisible to others. Albert Einstein. And I read that today, and it's just like, I'm going to save that, because for me, that sums up who you are, is... um, and there's, there's two parts for me. One is you give yourself the permission and those around you to be open for the opportunity uh, and for and have that visibility. And then once, once it's there, is that you then allow it to come in, you process, you connect, you activate the ideation piece and allow shit to happen. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I say this, I'm massively uh, impressed and inspired by all the work you do, you, the, the ability that you have to write uh, and connect people um, is uh, is truly magnificent. And if there's anybody that's listening uh, that hasn't seen any of your work, um, whether it's for you or not, just to see how uh, you put all of you into the content that you deliver, uh, it's definitely worthwhile looking at. Um, Julie, thank you ever so much. Um, this has been great. Uh, I am Adam Harris. I'm Frank and Phyllis, and this is the Leadership Podcast. If you have enjoyed, which I hope you have, please make sure you allow and just forward to just one person. Uh, that's just what we can do to just uh, share the love. And hopefully by listening to uh, Julie, that will inspire at least one person to then do something differently um, and think bigger and perform better. Till the next time. See you soon. Bye.